Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So, those of you who've been to the British Museum will know that it has a great many different rooms and a great many different exhibitions happen there. And those of you who have been there will know you can spend hours and hours in just one room. The British Museum is not a place where you can easily just hop in and out, look at everything, get a feel for it and go. You can do that, but uh, if you decide to go into something properly and you look at something properly, you get a picture of it an amazing picture of it because you're in front of actual tangible artefacts. For example, the Egyptian room. Okay, so that's the most, probably the most famous of them all. And the Brits have been working on that since the 19th century. And they've been, everything they've got to do with each ancient Egypt, they put in that room. That's really quite amazing. But that is just one room. Now there is a very large room that some of you may have seen, which is really just in terms of Jewish history and in terms of uh, the material that we're looking at now in the project of the Nevi'im, the project of the prophets, uh, there's one room that just uh, is mind-boggling, the Assyrian room. Who has seen the Assyrian exhibition at the British Museum? If you know what you're looking at, it's mind-blowing. If you go into the room and you say, oh, that's very nice, there's a few old things in here, there's a few nice wall murals and an obelisk or two, and that's interesting, and you go, oh, old stuff, how impressive. And you really end up, if, if you don't know what you're looking at, then you're more impressed with the Brits than you are with the material you're looking at. But in fact, it is nothing short of astonishing. Assyria was the first of the great empires. It, the, the, the kind of geographical um, core of it is where? Yeah, it's in what we could today call Iraq, but Babylonia also comes from, Babylon also comes from there, but Assyria was a bit further north. In fact, those civilizations have been going, obviously, for thousands of years. And what we call the Assyrian Empire that we're going to talk about today is really, historians formally call that the Neo-Assyrian Empire because the Assyrians actually kicked off as a civilization about 1,500 years before. They had a little bit of expansion, a little bit of withdrawal. But this phase that happened in the 9th and 8th century BCE is called the Neo-Assyrian Expansion. And it's... Uh, really quite an incredible expansion. They were the first empire that saw themselves as uh, bringing their kind of values and agenda and civilization to other countries uh, that they formerly had nothing to do with. It's just that every year the emperor of Assyria uh, would be under pressure to go out with his army and conquer more territory. That's how you remained a successful emperor. That's how you impressed everyone. There wasn't a lot to do in those days. No TV, no internet, no Netflix. So the one thing that 
the emperor looked forward to every year was going out and smicing another country. Any, any emperor that didn't go out every year and conquer a new place would have been regarded as a bit of a leftist. Uh, and uh, the, so the Assyrians had this expanding agenda. Let's look at them. I just want to locate them in time. The Assyrian room in the British Museum is fascinating in Jewish history for more than what we're just going to talk about today. Because it's actually got evidence there that's amongst the earliest external account or external documentation. When I say external, I mean external to the Bible. External documentation of the existence of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So it's fascinating on that level. It's kind of like, you know, people can come along and they can say, oh, the Bible was written here and the Bible was written there and the Bible was written later. I'm here to tell you, and actually I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a footnote from this for one second because I actually thought this and I've been thinking it a lot recently and I want to share it with you. It's a little bit of a, it's not really going to be that informative, maybe, but it's just an observation that you would think that if you spend the amount of time that I do and have studying Jewish history and the prophets and Jewish texts and so on, that after a while you get a bit blasé and you get a bit used to things. But in fact, I'm continually, continually and more intensely blown away by the Bible's ability to record history in a way that does not display, in, not only does it not really very, very rarely display historical anachronism, I'm, not, I'm talking now about the historical books, I'm talking about the prophets, but it's like we take for granted today that we can access knowledge and that we can access the past through documents. If I said to you, how do we know that Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas in 1492? How do we know that? Well, we have documents. It's only 500, ye only 500 years ago, but we have documents and most people would say, oh, I know that. I know that because and if I want to find out that, I go and Google it. I Google it. And we live in an age, ladies and gentlemen, where our entire knowledge base as a civilization, as a species, is moving to this kind of centralized electronic form. And that is what it's going to be in the future. How do we know things? Oh, you Google it? All right, well, a little bit more beyond that. Because we have documentation, because historians are going to, because, because we have a continuous narrative, because we know it. And it only happened in the 15th century. So there hasn't really been a break since then in people's ability to write. And not only that, by the time Columbus was taking off in the Santa Maria already, Gutenberg was printing out his books. So you already had printing. Like, we, we, you know, like, we're already kind of almost at the dawn of the information age. The, we're at the height of the Renaissance. The Enlightenment's just around the corner. Fine. But the Bible, which cannot have been written later even in the most extreme, kind of extreme, sceptic view of the Bible, that is, by those people, as I've mentioned before, those people who sit and read the Bible with one hand and a bacon sandwich in the other. <coughs> I know. 
I know, I know, I know, I know. You reacted like that. Last time I said the word baker. But, but I, what, what I mean by that, that's my glib way of talking about uh, primarily Jewish people who, who read the Bible and don't take any of its content seriously. They go, oh, it's a good book. Or, or they're coming at it from a kind of a higher scholarly level. Even they can't deny that the Bible can be no later, most of the Bible can be no later than the 4th century BCE. And even the later, later parts can't be earlier than the 2nd century BCE. Where's their database? How are you sitting in that frame, in that period of time, without any technological resources, and yet able to talk about periods in the past which for them, had already happened four or five hundred years earlier without, without making one historical anachronism. That is, when we talk about Assyria, one of our main sources for that is the Bible. But it's not the case that we've got the Bible and we go, oh, the Bible says this, so let's go and look all over the Middle East for proof of that. It's we have completely independent verification of what we're going to talk about. And we've got the Bible, and the two match up. How do you do that? Either the Bible is divinely inspired, and therefore its awareness of historical context is obviously uh, comes from that particular framework, or uh, there is a core set and tradition of scribes within the Jewish people that preserve texts and. If there's one thing that the Jewish people do, it's they preserve text. So if a text was written in the 7th century, then by the 2nd BC, then by the 2nd century BC, 500 years later, that same text is going to be preserved. When we look, for example, at the book of Habakkuk today, we're going to be looking at a text that is when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are from the Qumran community of the 1st century, century BC and 1st century CE, and we compare those texts, they're identical. They're identical. And we see this today. People go, oh, that's interesting. We see this today. We see that in those hardcore, ultra-Orthodox communities within the Jewish world, they are the ones that are preserving the text for the next generation. We would not be reading these books today. We would not have a sense of our own continuity if not for that project. I just want to lay this out. When we look at these texts, we're looking at amazing 7th, 6th century texts that we can read, that we can read today because huh, the other thing is that in order to preserve the books, you need to be reading them and you need to be understanding them and you need to be analysing them and you need to be familiar with their language. Today we're going to look at three short books. Three short books. Each one is only three chapters. If you take ten minutes to read any one of those books, if it takes you ten minutes to complete any one of those books, you're reading, <coughs> you're reading slowly. They are not big books, but they are massively important books. Let me go back to this timeline. Let me pause it and show exactly what I want to talk about, because I want to talk a little bit more about Assyria. We're going to call this minus 800, and we're going to call this minus 500, 
And so, once again, I remind us that the whole of the prophetic project really happened within the course of these three centuries. Let's recap. Let's recap. I'm not doing this because I don't have enough to talk about on Nachum Chabakuk and Sefania. I'm doing this because I just want to make sure that we are locked in and uh, sometimes it's worth revising just so we see the pattern of what's happened. If you recall, Isaiah, we're sitting here, around about 700. Jeremiah, who is about 100 years later, at the height of the, you know, with the Babylonian conquest and the destruction of the temple. And Ezekiel, who's living a little later, he's already inside the Babylonian exile. We looked at Hosea and Amos. We'll put Yoel there too, although if you remember, Yoel's very difficult to date. But Hosea and Amos, Hosea and Amos, in the northern kingdom, they're there. Then we looked at Ovadia once again, very difficult to date. In fact, we kind of put Ovadia around here because really most scholars would be of the opinion that Ovadia is talking about the role of Edom in the destruction of the temple. We saw that last week. We looked at Yonah, and Yonah once again is around here in the northern kingdom, at the height of Jeroboam II. And we looked at Micha, and Micha is a contemporary of Isaiah. Now it's interesting because the, uh, the two prophets, two of the prophets we're going to talk about today, Habakkuk and Sephania, they are here. They are contemporaries of Jeremiah. Habakkuk and Sephania. Habakkuk's probably a little earlier. And Sephania. So they're grouped around Jeremiah. Whereas these, these of the minor prophets, the minor prophets, the twelve, are grouped around Isaiah. These are grouped around Jeremiah. That's what I mean by the big daddy prophet of each era. Everybody follow? And then what we're going to look at next week is we're going to look at this group that's kind of in the wake of Ezekiel. Uh, and they're actually sitting here. We're going to talk about Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. And they're kind of already the temple. They're getting the, temp the second temple up and running after the exile. Interestingly, and I won't go into this now, but there's an interesting perspective, is that each of these major prophets and or major kind of um, coalition of prophets is also connected with one righteous king. We only had a few righteous kings right throughout the first temple period. And one of them is here, that's Hezekiah. And one of them is here, that's Josiah. And one of them is here on the return. He wasn't a king, but he was a righteous prince, Zerubbabel. Everybody followed? So it's kind of this patterns to the way this works. But the period that we're going to start looking at today is here. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. There's a massive century between these two prophetic movements. And to understand why that is, is to understand 
the role that Assyria played in Jewish history. Because as I've said before, what happened in the 8th century is that under rulers like Tiglath-Pileser and so on, very, very famous. Tiglath-Pileser is not just a cartoon character from the comic books. Tiglath-Pileser is recognized by military and historians and archaeologists as one of the greatest conquerors of all time, brilliant military strategist. And Tiglath-Pileser took his army out and they conquered everywhere. And then we saw that they invaded Israel and we saw the vanquishment of the northern kingdom. Remember? By the Assyrians. That was it. That's, if you, if, 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 I mean, to understand that is to understand the impact that the Assyrian Empire had on the people of Israel. We were... Overnight, we went from 12 tribes to two. That since then, we have been known as the Jewish people. We were not known as the Jewish people before that. We were the people of Israel. But Jewish from Judah... That's because we are the remnant of that catastrophe that wiped out the northern kingdom. Twenty years later, the Assyrians were back. As we saw last week, they ravished the Judean countryside and eventually sieged Jerusalem, which we looked at in that first talk on Isaiah, that massive miracle that happened when the 200,000 strong Assyrian empire went away. And Jerusalem was left at this kind of unconquered island in the middle of the Assyrians' wave of destruction throughout the Levant. That happened in the days of the prophet Isaiah and that happened in the days of the king Hezekiah. Go to Jerusalem today, you will see, you can see, you can see and you can touch Hezekiah's wall that he built as a rampart defence against the Assyrian army. They didn't have to end up using it because of the miracle I described. But they, they he, different, uh, all, many, many different things in Jerusalem today they can locate from, the, from that period. And it's an event that's recorded in a number of different places, not just the Bible. Then what happened after Hezekiah? What happened after Hezekiah? Well, he died. Uh, he was going to die. Uh, and then, remember, he got an extra 15 years from the prophet Isaiah, and then he died. And then his son came to the throne. Can anyone enlighten us about that? Anyone know about that? I have mentioned it briefly before, but I'm not expecting people to absorb everything all the time. huh? You can say that again. He ended up being, well, well his son, he was followed by his son Menasheh. And Menashe ruled longer than any other king in the history of the Judean kingdom. Menashe ruled for 52 years. Yeah, like Victoria, well, Elizabeth. Ruled for 52 years. And he was, is regarded as an extremely awful king. He filled Jerusalem with blood by exterminating his opposition. He was something like Stalin on crack. And Menashe was uh, pushing, I mean, any opposition to his fundamental agenda. And his fundamental agenda was 
can be summed up in a very few words, and that was subservience to Assyria. Now, the Assyrians, but, 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 you, see, but, you, see, but, you, but you see, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that. It's not like saying, okay, so we'll raise the Assyrian flag every morning, we'll salute it, and we'll call ourselves, you know, a state within the wider confederacy of Assyria, and we'll pay them tax, whatever we have to pay them, and, you know, they'll leave us alone. That's, that's, that's how it was, you know, that's how the British ruled their empire. It wasn't how the Assyrians ruled their empire. Assyria was the name of the empire. Assy Ashur, it was called Ashur. Ashur was the name of the city, kind of the area where the city was. But Assyria was also the name of the god. So that it was a state religion. Now what Menashe did, therefore, is impose the state religion of Assyria in Jerusalem, but as well continued with and developed what we're certainly going to see in, in some of the later kings of Judah after Menashe, developed this kind of syncretic religion or religious atmosphere where basically any religion that wanted a shrine in Jerusalem could come and therefore because it, it, it was kind of a religious pluralism which on the surface sounds very nice but it meant that all of these kind of immoral cults that we see especially the ones that Jeremiah is talking about all of the, with all their abominations all their horrendous practices which always involved the exploitation of vulnerables, whether they were children or whether they were women or anyone that was vulnerable in society was exploited in this way as part of the religion. It, it, it was really quite horrendous. Menashe himself, we know, went to visit Assyria at various times. And I just want to put this in context for you, what he was prepared to do for this level of subservience. How do we know so much about the Assyrians? The Assyrians are building here. Here's where they conquer Israel. Here's where they invade Judea. And then here they're at the height of their power. And their height of their power goes all the way to here. How do we know so much about them? This is, this is those of you who are sitting there going, oh, I'm not really care how we know so much about them. How do we know what we know? We know a lot about the Assyrians, not just from the British Museum. We just know a lot about it. Yeah, but what is it about? What? We have tablets from all over the place, but here's the deal with the Assyrians. Because there was a very long reign during that century in Assyria. First of all, Sancherib, who's the one that attacked, you know, threatened to attack Jerusalem, uh, he was succeeded by Esharadon, a very big Assyrian king for about 20 years. And then Esharadon was succeeded by probably the most famous of all of the Syrian kings, a king the name, by the name of Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not expecting you to be totally au fait Assyrian history. This, this talk is not on Assyrian history, although it's kind of on Assyrian history. But Ashurbanipal was a very, very unique king. Anyone know why? Ashurbanipal was unique amongst kings of the ancient world because he could read. 
And the reason he could read was because he was not originally meant to be king. He was a prince in the royal family. And what you do with princes in the royal family who are not in the line of succession to become king is when they're young men, you take them off and teach them all sorts of useless things like reading. So due to a set of circumstances, Ashur Banipal actually came to the throne and he didn't just, couldn't just, it wasn't just that he could read, he loved books and he was very, very big backer of the writing of everything. Now that's, there you go, there you go. The library of Ashur Banipal, the famous library, was discovered in the 19th century. 30,000 cuneiform tablets. And once they cracked the cuneiform code, then we could basically read all about the Assyrian Empire like they had their own internet. And so we know it in great detail. One of the things that they actually used to do, the Assyrians used to do with visiting kings that were vassals to them, is that they would have the king of this state that Syria controlled that was visiting them, they would have that king enter into the throne room where the Assyrian emperor, whether it was Esharadon or Ashurbanipal, was sitting, and they would have to crawl into the room with a hook through their mouth, led by a chain. Whether this was only for those who required discipline or, the, or whether it was just a symbolic act that was carried out by any vassal king that visited Assyria, we're not entirely sure. But Menashe must have gone through that experience. He came back a kind of changed man, according to some reports. But there's very little question that during Menashe's reign, he wiped out all opposition. That is why, that is why, that is why we only have one prophet from this era. Now, I spent quite a bit of time... <laughs> in establishing that historical context because I want you to understand and be in no doubt we don't have any prophets between here and here except it would appear one and that prophet is the prophet Nahum there are various theories advanced as to why Nahum's writing or why Nahum himself managed to survive that era to the extent that his prophetic utterances are still with us one of those theories is that maybe he was actually living in Assyria at the time. There is the, uh, in Persia today, I think there's the, the tomb of Nahum. There's an alternative tomb of Nahum in Israel. Uh, so Nahum is uh, uh, shrouded in a kind of historical mystery. He may have lived just a little later towards the end, after Menashe's reign, we don't know, uh, but it would appear that that's where he's placed. And he's talking in his three chapters, pretty much about one thing. The first chapter of Nahum is about the destruction of Assyria. At the height of the Assyrian Empire, with everything going around, no one would have imagined that the Assyrians would collapse and would be destroyed. But there's the prophet Nahum saying, this arrogant nation, this nation that has swallowed others, this nation that has ravaged and pillaged other countries in its unbelievable arrogance because it thinks that it is God's gift to humanity, 
will be destroyed, as will all arrogant nations and empires. The first chapter is about the destruction of Assyria. The second chapter is about the destruction of Assyria. And the third chapter is about the destruction of Assyria. And what is amazing about that, what is amazing about that, because Nahum's style and his worldview and the way he expresses them, it's very, very difficult to place him after the destruction of Assyria. And so he must have been talking about it while Ashurbanipal's still on the throne, everything's going fine. But what happened was this. In minus 612, in minus 612, and this is a bit of a game changer as far as world history is concerned, in minus 612, and you'll see how it all ties in with stuff we've talked about before. In minus 612, uh, what was the capital of the Assyrian Empire? Nineveh. Nineveh. Remember that, that, that in the 8th century... Yonah describes that it takes three days to walk through Nineveh and it was a huge city and in minus 612 Nineveh is invaded, sacked, conquered and completely destroyed by this new force in the world called the Babylonians. The Babylonians originated from a place not far from the origins of the Assyrian Empire and for the last couple of hundred years the Babylonians had been kept down as a, as a kind of important and symbolically important but nevertheless oppressed state within the Assyrian Empire but the Babylonians had their own sense of destiny. And when they got powerful enough, under their leader Nabopolassar, they attacked Nineveh in 612 in an event that was extremely sudden. Extremely sudden. But all of the accounts of the destruction... That, by the way, is not yet the end of the Assyrian Empire. That was just the destruction of Nineveh. But all of the accounts... I mean, when Nahum says at the beginning of his third chapter, Hoi ir damim... Oi, city of blood, he's talking about Nineveh. Because his description of it matches everything that we're told about it. The pandemonium, the panic, the suddenness of the Babylonian army in the city. People are freaking out. The queen and her maidens are just scattered in panic. The king commits suicide. That's what we understand. It's one of the theories about what happened to the last of the, uh, the Syrian kings, but was certainly at least killed defending the city in some way. The Babylonians came through and they utterly destroyed Nineveh. Nahum's prophecy is kind of a clear arrow to that, and he describes it in detail, describes the colours and the people rushing around and just the, the sheer hopelessness of the Assyrian capital in the face of this Babylonian wave of Babylonian attack. Uh, the, the Assyrian Empire, kind of the remnants of it, picked itself up and moved to re-establish themselves in Haran. 
Babylonians came for them again in Haram. Babylonians weren't going to leave anything around of the Assyrian Empire. That was in minus 609. Why is that important for us? Minus 609 is the year that minus 609, when the Assyrians have re-established themselves at Haram, is the year that Pharaoh, Pharaoh Nehor of Egypt, took his army to try and help the Assyrians because they didn't want a vacuum. They didn't want the Babylonians moving into a vacuum. And they went to shore up the Assyrian defences at Haram. That was the event where Judah, under King Josiah, went to Megiddo with the army of Judah to stop Necho going through Israel. Josiah was, at that time, a more or less an ally of Babylonia. Josiah didn't like the idea of the Egyptian army going through to help the Assyrians, and that is, the, uh, that is where Josiah was killed the Egyptian help, the Egyptians ended up really helping the Assyrians. And, in, and then finally, uh, the Assyrians established their last kind of power bastion and military base at Karchemish. And then it's all history from there because we know what happened at Karchemish. At Karchemish. Uh, once again, the Egyptians came to help the Assyrians. The Assyrians thought, oh, here we are in Karchemish. Now we're going to reestablish our empire. Uh, Nabopolassar is sick. He's gone back to Babylon. So no one's, you know, it's like, no one's going to come and get us. But in fact, Nabopolassar sent his son, the crown prince, Nabukaduriusur, who we know as Nebuchadnezzar, he came to Karchemish in minus 605, it's like, it's like northern Syria, southern Turkey, came there uh, with an enormous army and so violently and completely crushed the Assyrians. Not only did he do that, but the Egyptian army that had gone up to help the Assyrians, Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't even engage in the battle. They got there, saw what was going on, turned around and ran the other way. The Babylonians pursued them and slaughtered that entire army. Egypt did not raise its head after that for hundreds of years. And Nebuchadnezzar was now in town. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Nebuchadnezzar goes back to become the emperor of Babylon. There's an entirely new shift happened in history. Nahum is really not talking about that. He's talking about the destruction of Nineveh. But it's very important for us to realize in terms of what's about to happen with the subsequent book that we realize that the destruction of the Assyrians didn't mean that, you know, it was all kind of hunky-dory. Uh, there was a new force called the Babylonians. The Babylonians were kind of a little, from our perspective, what we can see at least, were a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more enlightened in some ways than the Assyrians. The one thing you can say about these empires, for the most part, with some exceptions, is that they do tend to go more and more enlightened as you go along. When I say enlightened, I don't mean by 
21st century standards. I mean that they were not necessarily going to wipe out everybody in a place uh, and then just go home. They weren't just doing it for sport. They were interested in local administrations. They were interested. They were, you know. But once again, we're not at the Persians yet. So the Book of Nahum, a very very unknown book, a very unknown book in the Jewish textual canon. One of the reasons why that is, is because there's no haftarah from the book of Nahum. In fact, two of the books today, Nahum and Sophania, there's no haftarah read in the synagogue on that. By the way, how many of you are regular shulgos, just as a matter of interest? There's a few regular shulgos. Some shuls around the world, I've noticed... I can't even believe I'm going into this, but I'll go into it for a moment. Some shuls around the world, I've, noticed, I've seen this in Melbourne, and I've seen it in Los Angeles, and I've seen it in other places, has developed this habit that after the reading of the Torah, a whole lot of guys get up, and they leave the shul, and they go to what they call a kiddush club, and they have a few l'chaims there, a few scotches, and then they come back into shul for either the rabbi's sermon or musaf, whatever. Some of you are looking at me shocked. You're obviously not aware of this phenomenon. Maybe you go to different shuls where that doesn't happen. I mean, there's, it just so happens. I was a kind of a, a guest lecturer on Shabbat, and I'm there, and I'm, they finished the trial, and I saw, literally saw, half the congregation go up and leave. And I went out of shul, and I wanted to know what was going on. I followed them. And I went, I didn't even know where I was. It was this complex building, and I, was like, I couldn't see anyone. Eventually, I open a door and I walk out into a courtyard, and there were about a hundred people there. Just, they had a massive pot of cholent, right? This is in the middle of a shul service, massive pot of cholent, and there's bottles of scotch on the tables, whatever. I mean, it's very, very nice. Very labour-dick. Yeah, now, now, now. So, so the reason why is currently under analysis right across the Jewish world, why this phenomenon is happening. One of the reasons, I know, I know why it's happening. I know why it's happening, but I'm not going to go into that. If you don't know my opinion, then just guess and imagine it. Now, however, over the course of the last few years, having seen this phenomenon in different places, I have started expressing my astonishment and my kind of frustration that people do not realize the unbelievable gems that they have in front of them, the, the, the institution of the Haftarah, of reading a section from the Nivim, a section from the Prophets after the reading of the Torah, developed throughout the Talmudic period and became solidified in Babylonia, but it, 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 it is, uh, I mean, why did they do this? Did they do this so that you could just leave the shul and do something else? These are unbelievably priceless and timeless insights into Jewish spirituality that you just don't get anywhere else. Maybe they're not aware. They're not aware. If you don't know the historical but it's not just them. If you go to the yeshiva world today, they do not know Nevi'im. They do not know the prophets. They do not understand the historical context of the prophets, 
and they don't actually even know them. Some do, and there are places, you know, the Israeli education system, the high Israeli high school education system is probably the greatest school for the knowledge of Tanakh that we've had in the last 50, 60 years. So Israeli secular education, not about now, but certainly, you know, in the first few decades of the state, they provided this amazing education in the Bible. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm going into these side things because if you ask some people, what is this prophet about? What is that prophet about? Well, there's a few haftarot, so maybe they might be aware if they haven't gone out and drowned their sorrows in scotch, they might actually have looked at the haftarah occasionally. Maybe they did a bar mitzvah in one, maybe their son did a bar mitzvah in one. They're familiar with the haftarah. You sit in shul year after year, you're going to know the haftarah. But Nachum, we have no haftarot. It's a funny, we have no haftarot. So I'm highlighting this because it's such, it, it seems like a very simple book, Three Chapters, Destruction of Assyria. But it's an amazing historical document, and the Hebrew is stunning. Those of you who are, uh, you know, capable of looking at the Hebrew, I mean, just the first pasuk, you know, Masan Ninveh, this is the burden of a vision of Ninveh. Sefer Chazon Nachum Ha'el Koshi, Nachum Le'el Koshait. Listen to the Hebrew. Even if you don't understand the Hebrew, listen to the Hebrew as I read it. El kanova nokeim Hashem, nokeim Hashem uva'al chema, nokeim Hashem letzara v'noter hu lo'oyevav. El kanova nokeim. God is a vengeful God who actually takes vengeance. In other words, what is the deeper message inside? Nachum, it's not just to amaze us with his historical prophecy. What is inside Nachum? Is a ah. Oh. And listen, listen. Tell yourselves, tell your children, tell your grandchildren. Nothing happens in this world without God's hand. That's the message of Nahum. And you can say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> At the very least, and sometimes when it comes down to the micro of our everyday lives, we can't always figure it out. But at the very least, on the geopolitical level, nations and empires rise only because God wants them to. This is going to be very important for us to understand when we look at the next two books. Only because God wants them to and they go into decline or they collapse or they're conquered only because God has decreed it. Yechezkel said this. Yechezkel, the prophet Ezekiel says this. Higbati shafel. I raise the low tree. Hishpalti kavoa. I bring down the high tree. No one would have predicted the end of the Assyrian Empire in the middle of the 7th century. No one. It was running on high oil. And yet, overnight. And we just don't know. And what Nahum is telling us is that there's a reason the Assyrians were brought down. It was their unbridled arrogance. There is obviously, there is obviously a subliminal warning inside here for Judah. But it is the sheer willful arrogance 
of that nation that inevitably led to their destruction. Now, I'm going to move on to Habakkuk. What we're going to do is I'm going to speak about Habakkuk for five minutes. Habakkuk is, is probably the most book that we're going to do today. But I thought, how do you divide this up in two parts of this today's talk? So I was going to deal with Nahum and I wanted to get inside Assyrian history. And then I thought that I would take us up to the break by just doing not the whole book of Habakkuk. I just want to do the first chapter. And I don't want anyone looking at the book because I just want to talk about it for a minute and then I want you to look at it. We'll look at it together. Uh, I've shown you where Habakkuk is likely dated. He's, um, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk, but we know when he's dated because he, um, we know what he's talking about. There is, a, there is a Midrash that Habakkuk is the son of the woman, the son of the Shunammite woman that was revived by Elisha. Those of you who are familiar with that biblical passage in the book of Kings. The problem with that view, if you call it a problem, is that if that's the case, then Habakkuk, by the time he comes along and does these prophecies, is quite well over 200 years old. Uh, but uh, so, and in, in also likelihood that he's, 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 a, he's a contemporary, I mean, he's a product of his generation. Uh, the, he's a contemporary of uh, Yeshayahu, contemporary, oh, not of Yeshayahu, of, of Yeremiah, just, just a bit older than Jeremiah. Habakkuk has a serious question. He looks around at his society. I haven't quite necessarily had the Josianic Reformation yet. He's looking at the... I mean, what I talked about the long reign of Menashe. Who was after Menashe? Menashe was succeeded by his son, who said, Dad was an amateur when it came to angering God. Ammon had the name of God tattooed on his private parts. According to Midrash, that's not in the text. <laughs> he caused every Torah scroll of the law, every Torah scroll in Jerusalem to be burnt. That's why when in Josiah's time they discovered it, they, had, they weren't quite sure what it was they were looking at. Ammon was a very wicked king. And he only lasted two years. And it was his son, Josiah, who around the age of Bar Mitzvah went, Oh, I'm a Davidic king. I'm going to be a different style of king than my father and my grandfather. I'm going to be like my great-grandfather. To David Aviv, like David, his father. He said, there is a destiny to being a Davidic king. It involves a relationship with God. And he said about this massive reformation, this religious reformation. And we looked at that when we looked at the prophet Yirmiyahu. And that's why it was so tragic that when Yoshiao, Josiah, was killed in, uh, in 609 in the Battle of Megiddo. But so none of that's happened yet. And Habakkuk's looking around his generation and all he sees is yuck. He sees the exploitation, he sees the oppression, he sees the ill-gotten gain, he sees 
just the crime and and he starts his words look at verse 2 ad ana hashem until when god shivati velotishma i've been calling out and you ain't listening ezak elecha hamas we scream out violence velotoshia and you will not save why god are you allowing this to happen why are you standing by silently? Good, innocent, righteous people are calling out to you about this horrendous society that has been created and you are kind of silent. You're doing nothing. To which... Now, that's only half the question. That's only half the question. In verse 6, in verse Vav, Habakkuk says, Whoa, no, God says, Oh, don't think I'm not doing anything. That society, your society, Habakkuk, is going to get its comeuppance because. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. The Kasdim refers to the Babylonians. To the Chaldeans. Yeah, Chaldean, Babylonian. Same thing. Remember, these are not just poet, pro, prophetic words. This is sheer sublime poetry. Hagoy hamar vahanimhar. What is hamar vahanimhar? Mar is bitter. And what is nimhar? Sorry? Hasty. It's a nifal of maher. Haholech lemer chaveher. It's the go to the wide part, you know, the, the ends of the earth. Lareshid mishkanot lo lo. To inherit dwelling places that are not, that do not belong to it. I'm going, in other words, make note, make note, there's a reflection there. We're going to look at this more. There's a reflection between people who uh, exploit and conquer others in order to get what is not rightfully theirs. I'm going to raise a nation that goes to the end of the world to do just that to other nations. It's a reflection between the evil of your micro and the macro. But, and I'm going to, we're going to go and have a coffee in a second, but I just, but, but that, but so that's not where Habakkuk's question is finishing. Because Habakkuk goes, ah, oh, so, okay, you're going to send the Babylonians. But um, the Babylonians are worse. <coughs> and when the Babylonians come, when the Babylonians come, they're not going to line up these people and these people and go, oh, you're righteous, you're okay, you're wicked, we'll kill you. They're going to kill everyone. The righteous are going to get swallowed up in this great catastrophe that you have planned, God. How does that work? 
How is that divine justice? That's a big theological question. Take some serious Beitzim to stand there and ask God, how is that just? I understand you want to put an end to this society. You're going to bring the Babylonians. They're going to destroy everyone. And uh, that's Habakkuk's big question. And we're going to look at what the answer to that is when we come back from the break. I notice it's, it's read on second day Shabbat. Mm. So usually the Haftarah has got something to do with the Parsha. Yes. 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 And it's interesting. Uh, what does that mean if it's read on second day Shavuot? So I talked about the fact that we don't know Nachum Mutzvanya because we don't have Haftarot from them. But there is a Haftarah from Habakkuk, but it's read on second day Shavuot. What does that tell you? It's not in Israel. It's not in Israel. They don't read it in Israel. It's only in second day. It's only outside of Israel that they read it as a Haftarah. So that is it's an interesting aspect. And the relationship between that and Shavuot is a kind of complex one, weird one. We're going to uh, have a break, short, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look. Because I have a lot to say about Habakkuk. It's a very, very deep and important book. In this course, uh, we're studying texts, and, and I'll highlight a particular chapter as being perhaps, you know, they're all important, but as a, a specific chapter as being perhaps uh, more fundamental and important than others. We looked at examples of that. We, you know, the 26th chapter of Jeremiah, the 6th chapter of Micha, the 1st chapter of Ezekiel, or the 8th chapter of Ezekiel. Uh, certain chapters really stand out and are famous because they managed to encapsulate in a stunning way, um, deep and sublime at the same time, the prophetic message. So probably uh, I should highlight that chapter 2 of Habakkuk, the second chapter of Habakkuk, is regarded universally as one of the great statements of the prophetic tradition. In fact, there are three words in that chapter which are regarded by many sages as not only a summation of the prophetic tradition, but in fact uh, a summary of kind of the entire spiritual discourse of mankind. That's how big it is, and I'll point out those three words. But basically, uh, just to recap, Habakkuk has thrown these, you know, <coughs> theological questions up at God, and in fact, at the very beginning of chapter 2, this famous chapter I'm talking about, he says this, he says, Al mishmarti e'moda. I'm going to wait here. I'm going to stand on my guard. I'm just going to, you know, like station myself. I'm going to wait, I'm going to look and I'm going to expect and see. Lirot ma'idaberbi, what God will say to me, and how I'm going to be kind of respond on, on, on my reproof. In other words, I'm not really going to leave this alone. This is not just, you know, something I thought about while I was lying in bed trying to go to sleep, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting question. I'm actually going to 
make a point of not letting go until God gives me an answer. And God does. God answered me. And he said, and what was the question? What, what's the question? How is it that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to wipe out everyone, including the righteous? And I mean, and let's not forget the first question, God, which was, why are you letting this happen anyway? This, why has this society become so degraded without you doing anything within it? And you're bringing this great force from outside and that's going to be kind of even worse. Write this vision, says God. Explain it on tablets so that anyone who wants to know what it says can read it quickly. Sentence. Who's going to read? Who's going to read? Is a particular verse I want you to read? Who's going to read? Yes? Are you volunteering? No? Okay, but what verse? I'm about to tell you. <laughs> We've got, a, we've got two or three key verses here that are going to give us an understanding. If you just read this, uh, it's not so easy to understand. So the, the, the way in which I can maybe help you is someone who's read it many times and delved into it, that maybe we can try and get the essence of it in a way that might shortcut that for you. Um, so read verse 4, please. Behold, his soul is haughty. It is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Okay. Be'emunato yichyeh. The righteous person lives by his faith. That phrase in isolation is not so easy to understand. We have to put that slightly in context. The righteous person will live by his faith. In other words, it's not talking about, oh, I'm righteous, therefore I have faith. You know, I'm going to sit there and have faith, it'll all be okay because I'm righteous. But that righteousness is an expression of faith. Righteousness is a manifestation of faith. And the word emunah in Hebrew is very, very only approximated at by the word faith. It means loyalty, it means sincerity. It doesn't mean a belief system the way it came to in the Middle Ages where we talk about, you know, do you believe in God, right? Like belief, that, or do you believe, I have a belief in, in the Messiah or God or whatever it is. Emunah for the prophets is a fundamental authenticity and integrity to life. Righteousness and life and faith are all one. That's the first thing that we've got to try and encapsulate, that we're not there yet in understanding fully what this chapter is doing. One of the things this chapter is doing is this. We'll come back to, we'll come back to the righteous living by their faith in a moment. It's, uh, this is, if you, if, I mean, really, this is kind of like a big, big power chapter. And throughout the chapter... Habakkuk, kind of in the name of God, God is kind of talking through the prophet, utters what we call the five hoys. The five hoys. The word hoy is a difficult word to translate. 
But five times the prophet says hoi about different levels of social injustice. The word hoi means, it's kind of got the meaning of oi, like oi ve, like woe, so often translated as woe, but it's more exclamatory than that. It's almost like, it's almost like a woeful version of when you call out hoi. Alas, alas, or woe to. Alas, alas is pretty good. Now, it starts in verse 6. Hoi hamar belolo. Hoi hamar belolo. Alas, or woe, but a kind of a, it's a serious calling out. I'm naming you. The one who increases that which is not his. Ten sixty-three. It's the page she's looking for. All right. Three years before William the Conqueror. Hoi, yeah. So where did we see that before? We saw that when Habakkuk was talking about Behold, I'm going to bring up the, the Babylonians who go around and conquer places that are not theirs. Similarly, The one who increases that which is not his. The word law is spelled with an aleph and then it's spelled with a vav. That which is not his. And then the second hoy, the second hoy, is we're looking in verse 9. Hoy botsea betzaraleveto. Alas or woe, the one who, who makes ill-gotten profit for his household. Well, if you look at the second part of the verse, it's kind of, La sumba marom kino, to place in the high places his nest, lihinatzel mikavra, to be, uh, so that he will be saved from kind of evil events. This is people who shore up their own security at the expense of others. And then the next one, hoi bone ir bedamim. I mean, it's amazing because it's almost like a cross-reference to Nahum here. It's like Habakkuk has read Nahum because Nahum starts his third chapter Hoi Ir Damim, Woe City of Blood, and here we have Woe is the one who builds the city with blood V'chonen Kiriyaba and establishes a habitation with uh, injustice. That's verse 12. That's the third Hoi. Then the fourth Hoi Fifteen. Hoi mashkerehu. This is about exploitation through... I mean, I think the implication of this verse is primarily sexual exploitation. Uh, it reads a bit like a date rape scenario. Hoi mashkerehu. Woe to one who um, 
causes his friend who is uh, to become drunk. Uh, is someone want to read that in English? Verse 15. Yeah. So people who exploit others for those kind of purposes. And the last hoy, verse 19. The last verse, which is, ver- not the, the, the last hoy, which is verse 19. Is really... I ha- we, we, ha- we haven't got to the main theme of this chapter yet. I'm just sh- I just need to show you certain things about it. I need to show you Tzadik Be'emunatoyichye, and then I just wanted to go through the five hoys so we can really understand the chapter. Then we're going to nail what it's actually saying. Hoy Omer La'etz Hakitza. When I talk about the relationship between social justice and idol worship, and people are confused by that. Social injustice is the pursuit of power. Idol worship is the pursuit of power. You worship an idol because it gives you something. So after all of these four things, you know, the ill-gotten gain, the, the exploitations, the, the unjust acquisitions, and where does that lead? Verse 19. Hoi omer. And this is the final one. So it's building up to this. What is the end of your injustice? What are you eventually going to do? Hoi omer la hakitza. The one who says to a, the piece of wood, wake up. Uri. Get up. Le'even dumam. To the inanimate stone. Yeah. In other words, idol worship, but the pursuit of false and pointless gods that you see as the source of your power. And that if you do certain things, the God will give you certain things, and it's an ideology created to justify your own wicked lifestyle. And there's one more verse that we're going to look at to really wrap this up. But before we look at that verse, what is Habakkuk saying? Habakkuk is saying, God is saying through Habakkuk. And it's a very, very big idea. In fact, the more I think about it, the more amazing it is that this idea emerges in the Jewish prophetic tradition in the, in the, in the late 7th century that tyranny a society run along the lines of tyranny is the seed of its own destruction more than just saying you reap what you sow you are what will happen to you? It is not the case that the ends justify the means, but the means determine the ends. A wicked society will bring itself down because as 
soon as you sin, the punishment for that is borne by the sin itself. <coughs> Have a look at verse 11. Famous verse in Habakkuk. Very powerful. Ki even mikir tizak. Because the stone will cry out from the wall. V'chafis me'etzi ya'anena. And the beam from the wood will answer it. If you build a house out of ill-gotten corruption, that house itself will be calling out. It will, you will be sowing the seeds of your own destruction. Just as that happened to Judah is happening to Judah, so of course it will happen to Babylon, but it's happening to Judah. By the way, just one second. Habakkuk's question doesn't really get answered until the prophet Zephaniah. So just, we'll, we'll be there, right? We'll be there. Yeah, very, very quickly. I just wanted to ask, in the situation of storm, the righteous man had an escape clause, but there's no escape clause for the righteous who haven't been building these little Very, very good. Very, very good. Very good. That, uh, very good. That's what's bothering you. And it's not just bothering you, it's bothering other people. And not just in this room, it's bothering the prophets. And we're going to look at that in a second. So Habakkuk's big message about this is really the answer that Habakkuk is actually giving. And he's going to give it, and he's giving it. But the problem is, is that, and he's giving it through Habakkuk and also Tsefania comes into about this particular answer. Coming through Habakkuk is the idea that God, God's, and it's not satisfying. This particular answer is not satisfying. But God's justice, and we see it in chapter 2 and chapter 3, God's justice works through historical time. So God's justice uh, is an ongoing justice. They will also be punished. But yeah, meantime, yeah. Until, until people, until humanity wakes up and realizes how to behave and how to act, God's justice will keep being applied. It was applied to former generations, applied to now generations, and future generations, and it works through time. In the third chapter of Habakkuk, God basically blows away everything. I'm God. My justice is way beyond it fills the world I stay silent for reasons that I do I, I make noise for reasons that I do but know know that God's justice is a fundamental component of the fabric of the universe what does that sound like who does that remind us of listen theological question theological question not so much about why the righteous suffer, but why, why the wicked people are doing so well. Why are they doing so well? Why are you letting that happen? Followed by God coming along and going, I'm God. It is the book of Eov, the book of Job. It only occurred to me recently when I was kind of rereading Habakkuk that 
this is an amazing relationship between Habakkuk and Eov that I have to go into more because it might open up some doorways uh, in, in understanding that. Um, sometimes, sometimes, you know, I'm going to share with you a personal thought as if I haven't before now, but uh, really, really, um, spirituality deals with questions. Questions. And religion deals with answers. But sometimes the question is more important. Sometimes the question is the spiritual quest, and it is the spiritual journey, is that question. To constantly think of that question. If we could, some people treat, you know, rabbis or priests or, or other instruments of religion as like theological vending machines. You put in a question, oh, out comes an answer. Well, that just means that as soon as I don't like that answer, I don't like the whole thing. I mean, what's the point? But the point is not the answers. The answers are only suggested answers that work in certain contexts over time. What is much more important about Habakkuk is the question. And the second chapter where God says, well, look, I'm not, I, that, that question doesn't get directly answered, but I'm going to point you to this tremendous symmetry that happens on the micro and the macro between the way that entities and people and events really are the outcome of the way that they themselves have lived. The righteous person lives with faith. The wicked person sows their own destruction. That happens on a global level and it happens on a very minute level in society. I'm going to move on to Tsefania because we're going to come back to that issue because Tsefania doesn't really leave it alone. Tsefania is here. Tsefania is here. He's a contemporary, direct contemporary of Jeremiah. In fact, uh, the rabbis tell us that uh, Tsefania was basically based in the city while Jeremiah was mostly running around the countryside. And Tsefania has got the longest lineage of any of the prophets that we know. He actually goes back three generations. By the way, that third chapter of Habakkuk is a famous chapter. It's called, it's actually a prayer. It's Tfilal Shigyonot. It's a prayer. We're not entirely sure what Shigyonot means, but a lot of people seem to think it's like, oops, I'm really sorry, God, for asking those questions. I've obviously pissed you off. That's what it seems, that's how it seems to read. Well, that, that, that is the first verse of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. It's kind of a, a prayer about, I'm apologizing God for being uncertain. Yeah. Now, have a look at Tsefania. The word of Hashem, which was to Tsefania ben Kushi ben Gedalia ben Amarya ben Chizkiah. So, it's possible that he's a fifth generation descendant from the king Hezekiah, but not necessarily. Well, the really, really big sentence that's going to emerge in Sephania, and which is going to address your question, is verse 2. Don't look at the English, look at the Hebrew. Asof, asef, kol. I'm going to destroy everything. 
It's a very, very startling statement, especially that's your opening statement. They're your opening words. I'm going to destroy everything. You know how Micha is a microcosm of Yeshayahu, of Isaiah, so Tzafania is kind of like a microcosm of Jeremiah. It's really a lot of the message, although Tzafania's message is very uplifting, especially in chapter 3, we really do start with this extremely dramatic pronouncement. Everything is going to get geschmeist. Me'al adama from the face of the earth, says God. Now the problem with that is, is that some of that might have been averted at different times, but um, it's kind of, you know, this worrying thing in some ways is that the prophecies of the prophets of Israel tend to come true over time. And so maybe, uh, who knows, um, maybe that's for the far distant future, but certainly there's a message that no one's going to escape this justice prima facie, no one. However, Tsefania will go on to explain that maybe, 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 and of the three prophets we're looking at today, he's the biggest on this message, if you do Teshuvah, that is, if you return to a more authentic way of existence, if you return to being, for want of a better term, a nicer person, if you return to being someone who cares about doing the right thing, and the good thing, then maybe you will have a chance to escape personally the fate that is going to befall Jerusalem because the Babylonians are coming and God's at the head of that army and they're coming. And so there is a hope if you're personally righteous. The macro, forget about it. That's happening. That is happening, of course, because by the time we get to around about there, and the Assyrians have been defeated, the Babylonians, we've got kings like Jehoiakim on the throne, Josiah's dead, and Jeremiah is the one who's, and Sophania going around saying, this is not a question for discussion. This is happening. The only thing, even, even if you did the most amazing national repentance now, it won't help. It's gone. But personally, you might manage to escape some of the awfulness. That's going to be, as I said, the prima facie condition. Now let's, once we accept that, just we, everything needs to be transformed here. Everything needs to be transformed. The only thing that's going to survive out of this is a remnant. And the only thing about that remnant you need to know is that they are righteous people who have sought humility and justice in their lives. This is... This is the message of Tsefania. And he's calling for um, he's calling for Teshuva. He's calling for this movement of transformation that's going to happen. And he actually is kind of he's kind of answering Habakkuk in a way. Tzadik be'emunato yichyeh. The righteous will live by their faith. And in fact, yes, Tsefania is the one who tells you. Boker baboker. Don't think there's no justice in the world. Every morning as the light comes up, know that God's justice is in the world. Yes, if you are righteous, you will be spared. It's coming back down to that very, very basic idea 
and he's answering Chabakuk and going, fair enough, fair enough, uh, it, it's going to be a total destruction, but there is justice in the world, and we do know people survive the destruction. Now, that doesn't necessarily help us in the 21st century to understand why people and groups of people, and we're all thinking of the Shoah, go through these horrendous things where, you know, how many countless people that died in the Holocaust were in fact good people. And not just righteous because they were religious, but righteous because they were decent, good people. And so, yeah, and so we know that, and, but I've said this before, I've said this before, I've said this before. We live in a very strange time in Jewish history, and uh, this is kind of, in some ways, the easiest period in which to teach the prophets, because it's amazing in many ways, and in some ways it's the most difficult, because so many of the theological perspectives that we as a people had prior to the Holocaust were just obliterated. Well, they were just obliterated. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's a very, very, very difficult thing to try and match up. And you look at the prophecy, you go, well, I want, I know, because I know, you look at this text and you go, I want to be inspired. I want to take a universal message away. But look what happened in the last century. So where is God? Where is God's justice? And you know that, you know that maybe we could push that further. But it's kind of being in this generation and being aware of those relatively recent historical events actually allows us to understand the question deeper. It allows us to understand Habakkuk's question deeper. And this is why I come back to this idea that it's the question that's important. How, God, why do you stand silent and nothing's happening? And then where was mankind and we are part of a larger society. We're not just individuals. We partake in that. And unfortunately, as the prophets also tell us, it is kind of the role of the Jewish people, not only to enlighten the world, but also to take on a lot of the world's crap. I know you're looking at me very, very disturbed with that comment. I know some of you are looking at me very disturbed. But there's no question. that I mean, there's a, he, For him, it's not a question of saying, oh, I'm not sure if there's a God. Right? He's not a 21st century secularist. He's, 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 he's in communication with God. God is kind of infusing him. Remember what Jeremiah said when he said to the false prophet, I know you're not, I know God didn't speak to you because I know what it's like when God speaks to me. I'm a wreck. I mean, look at me. And God burns my bones and like, out it comes. It's uh, not a simple process. So... Um, Habakkuk is in, in, in kind of infused with that. Now, chapter 2 of Zephania, just to give you an idea of the language, those of you who are familiar with the Hebrew, hit kosher shu vakoshu. See the alliteration happening there and the rhythms that are going on. Hit kosher shu vakoshu Gather yourselves together, you nation without desire. before it gets really, really bad. And then 
Look at verse 3. Bakshu et Hashem kol Seek God, all you humble of the land. Hashem ishpato pa'alu, whose justice they have done. Bakshu tzedek, seek righteousness. Bakshu anava, seek humility. Ulay tisatru biyom af Hashem. Maybe you will be spared on the day of God. This big thing that Sefania talks about is the day of the Lord. On the eve of the destruction, I'm going to give it to you one last time. No great big fancy speeches about how you should be living. Just one really simple plea. Just seek righteousness. Seek it. Don't just live it. Seek it. Seek humility. Stop the misappropriation. Stop the exploitation. Stop the arrogance. Stop the power games. Just live your life justly and simply. It's a, it's a, it's a, it comes right at the end of the prophets. Just, this, is, this is the last one. Remember, the next three Nevi'im we're going to do are after the exile, after the destruction, after the exile. This is the last prophet. Him and Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is kind of busy. Tzaphania is there going, just, just do that. And maybe, I can't, we can't stop the Babylonians, but maybe you'll be spared. If you read these books and you understand its historical context, you read the increasing tempo and patheticness as it gets towards this inevitability. The Babylonian conquest of Judea, of Judah, and the destruction of Jerusalem was no picnic. It was horrendous. They sieged it. And, you know, the prophet Jeremiah tells us, women were eating their own babies inside the walls. The hunger and the famine and the destruction and the death was horrendous. Very, very few made it out alive. We already had the first wave of exiles, a few thousand people that were in Babylon that were going to set up the movement that was going to come back but in Jerusalem itself, it was horrendous. I want to talk about chapter 3 for a few minutes then, and we're winding up because Zephania uh, is the one who opens a window on a very, very new theme. Obviously, Zephania has already touched upon the great themes of the prophets, which I'm sure we're all familiar with by now, having sat in this room for a few weeks before. The essence of spiritual existence, the essence of what it means to live properly, this ethical call of God on the one hand, on the other hand, the notion of teshuvah, the notion of return, the notion that there is always, always a path back to that level of authentic existence. Always. And that once you embark on that path towards authentic existence, your whole world becomes changed if you affect it properly through an inner transformation. That is... Sophania is touching upon this and he's touching upon that. But now he opens an interesting theme which is kind of a little bit unique because Sophania in chapter 3 is talking about the fact that look, there is going to be life after the destruction and it's going for the Jewish people and it's going to come in the form of exile. I mean, do you realize, do you realize that we are sitting here discussing texts that are part of the most remarkable continuum in human history? What other nation has gone 
through these cycles of exile and return as many times as we have. And we've never given up. I mean, I know it's not been us necessarily in this room. We haven't been plodding it along for 3,000 years. But there is something in the continuum that we learn from our parents and from our grandparents and from our ancestors and that is passed down and that we don't really have a choice about anyway because even if we don't want to be Jewish anymore, there's always plenty of people that will remind us. And that we, this, this unbelievable cycle of exile and return, who gets that? Who gets that? I mean, who committed the worst crimes against humanity in living memory? Who did that? The Germans. Did the Germans undergo exile? No. They got divided. They got divided for half a century, but did they undergo exile? No. Only the Jewish people get to undergo exile. And they're not just undergo exile, they get to return and try again. And then they undergo exile again and they get to return. But sometimes separated by less than a century, sometimes by thousands of years. Says Tsefania, exile has a purpose. It's not random. It has a purpose. The purpose is to refine you as a people. This is a very, very interesting idea that few people have explored, this idea of a theology of exile. That may be in some ways, you know, we've, got, we've probably been in exile more than we've actually not been in exile throughout Jewish history, which means that our process of attempting to understand who we are and what we're doing keeps getting refined and more understood. You're going into exile, says Stefania, and then therefore, and I'm reading, I'm reading, I don't want people to, don't read the English, listen, just listen, I will translate it, but just listen. Those of you who understand the Hebrew will realize how beautiful this is. Lachen, says Stefania in verse 8, Lachen chakuli neum Hashem. Wait for me, says God. Wait for me. On the day of my rising up to meet you. In other words, because my justice is to gather in nations. I will pour out my wrath on nations. Call Haronapi. All my wrath. For in the fire of my vengeance. Not my vengeance, my zeal. All the earth will be consumed. God has the power to do that. Therefore wait for me. Wait for me. It's the most plaintive cry to the Jewish people. And then... The stunning verse 9. The stunning verse 9. Which is uh, often quoted. Ki az, for then, poch elamim, I shall transform the nations, safa to a pure speech, a pure language. What is required in this transformation of the world that keeps creating 
this tension between people and between nations has got to be transformed even at a linguistic level so that your very language becomes a manifestation of your spiritual selves. So that all will call on the name of God to worship uh, him as one. In other words, there is, there is a danger here. That, you know that in some parts of the world, I've heard, some of you might be more aware of this than this, I've heard this. Some societies don't like, they ban monotheism. Monotheism is seen as dangerous. Seen as dangerous because, and it is, monotheism is dangerous. If you have a concept of God, of one God, and you believe that your concept of the one God is the correct concept of the one God, then you will attempt to impose that concept on everybody else. And we have seen the atrocities committed in the name of one God. So they come along and they say, well, you know, if you let everybody just do their thing, then everybody's chilled and people can worship God in the way that they want. And you're not going to have those atrocities. So monotheism can be dangerous. But that's not what Sefania is talking about. Sefania is talking at the level of Safa. He's talking at the level of a language. He's talking at the level where the very, the very discourse by which human beings communicate in the first place is a spiritual discourse. It's not about my concept of religion, my holy book versus your holy book, my one God versus your one God. La'avod shechemechad. And what is it really, what is really monotheism? What actually is it? It's not this idea that, you know, this, the God spoke to my ancestors or my prophet or this person, therefore it's in that book and this book, that book. True monotheism is a realization of the unifying nature of all things. That everything has a source and that the source of everything is divine and that it is one divine. You can't manipulate it. It is one divine that is the source of all things in reality. That realization is true, pure monotheism. And that is the that is the perspective that Safania is trying to give over that needs to infuse language because what Safania is giving you here at the end of these three prophets is this massively intense, stunning messianic vision. It's a messianic vision. You will not be ashamed of all the things that you have done the nation of, notion of Teshuvah is that this transformation will mean that there's no more shame in the world about any of your past discretions. It really is a global and human transformation that Safania is calling for on the other side of this horrendous day of the Lord that he's talking about. Now there are many, I mean this stunning, stunning Tzukim. When you go home and you read, you read Safania. If you can read it in the, uh, in the original, that's amazing. Because verse 17, verse 17 is very interesting. 
Read verse 17. Yeah. The Lord is in the middle, the warrior who brings triumph. He will rejoice over you and be glad. He will shout over you with jubilation. He will soothe with his love. Ah, soothe. Yeah. Look, my suggestion is when you read the prophets, when you read the Bible in translation, read it with two translations. Seriously. And try and approximate using the Hebrew, what the, what, what, what the verse is getting at. There's no reason why anybody in this room couldn't actually tackle it in Hebrew. So, to sum up, there is justice for the nations. And of course, Tzifania ends, Tzifania ends with the role that the Israel plays in this transformed world. Israel has a role in this transformed world and they need to be at the vanguard of that transformational consciousness because precisely they have been through that process of exile and return. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.